Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Well, happy Sabbath to you. I do hope that you have plenty in your lives to be thankful for. I am so delighted to be able to be here together. Thank you to our praise team, to our creative team. Eleni, happy birthday. What a wonderful day to be in God's house as we continue today, continue our Rescuer series through the book of Revelation as we have been studying today, worship, worship. A couple things quickly. First, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. Turn to Mark chapter 12. As you are doing that, um, I want to point something out, and I'll invite our deacons to stand and then pause for a second as you get this instruction. If you are here and you have not yet gotten one of our journals, they, they don't contain a lot. There's a lot of open territory for you to write, draw pictures, that sort of thing. These are for you, though. Please raise a hand to indicate that you would like one of those journals. If you are a child and you're not sure if this is for you, yes, the answer is yes. You are perfect for these two. Uh, maybe you're a guest and will only be here this one Sabbath. Yes, this is for you. Uh, again, they are largely empty. You can decide what goes in them. Had a couple of pictures shown to me by some of our children in the earlier service. And if you do draw a picture, young or old, I love seeing them. As well, we're going to be getting into some things that I'm sure might sponsor an idea or two, a reflection, something you might want to go back and take a look at. So you just raise your hand, even if you already have one, you want to give one away to somebody else, or you just would rather have a second one. That's fine too, until they're gone. We'd like you to have them. As they're passing those out, I just want to draw attention to something. Here at the University Church, we are always interested not only in what we and our own individual families are going through, but also what the university is doing. And today, out in our atrium, we have had a table with boxes like this. If you don't know what you're looking at, um, there may not even be any left by the time you get out there because people were just grabbing at them so fast. But if there are, I encourage you to step up to that table and say, yes, please let me have one of these packages. Here's what's going on with the packages. We have students of ours, our family members that are scattered around the globe right now as student missionaries. I've been a student here, have, have spent a year as a student missionary. Let me tell you something that you are just, I mean, anxious for, hungry for, and that is something from home. And you know when it gets worse? The holidays. So our, our uh, Office of Ministry and Mission is wanting to help take care of our students, our family members scattered abroad and thought, well, of course, our family would want to be a participant in this. So what you do is you go to those tables, you pick up one of these, and you follow, carefully follow the instructions of where to take it, and you pay for the postage. It's already packed. Everything is set up to be a gift, a bit of home to our students. And if by chance, by the time you get out there, there are none left, would you please do this for me? Would you pray over these packages? A blessing for our students who are growing and giving and experiencing Jesus in such amazing ways as student missionaries. Would you pray for them that they would have courage, that they would feel the strength of home uh, that comes with these packages? Thank you for doing that. 
Well, you have found your way to Mark chapter 12 by now and a little passage. Jesus has been interacting with a group of Pharisees and then Sadducees and along the way we hit verse 28 in Mark chapter 12 and it says this, one of the teachers of the law came and heard, him, heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, <laughs> he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And you know the answer. Jesus says, most important one? Well, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God. The greatest commandment, in fact, summing up the commandments, he'll go on to say there's a second like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God. And so we dive headlong into a study of the book of Revelation today entitled Worship. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we do. We thank you for so many things in our lives, relationships that we love, homes where we are safe, food that nourishes us, the ability to choose who and how we want to worship. Lord God, we pray a blessing today as we read your word, as we experience your presence, as we worship here together. Would you please draw close, teach us. In the name of Christ we ask it, amen and amen. Now we have been journeying through the book of Revelation and if you are a guest, first time here, uh, you know, pardon me, we're just going to kind of keep moving on. You're welcome to go back into our archives and catch up. We'll do our best, all right? We'll do our best to keep you up to date with where we are and what we're doing. Um, One of the things that we have taken a look at in this study of a book that starts out with the notion that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, As we search for Jesus Christ in this book of Revelation, uh, we've noticed a few things. One of them is that the structure of the book of Revelation is built on the structures of the Old Testament that John, a good Jew who knew it well, would borrow from and use as the fabric of his storytelling about who Jesus is, and that there is a structure here that's not common to our way of thinking, but makes a lot of sense when once you kind of think about it a little bit. It's called a chiastic structure by scholars. It's the idea, this is, if you did this here and had the same shape flipped with a mirror, it would form the shape of an X, right? Which chi, the shape of an X is the Greek letter here, the chiastic structure. The idea is that rather than like in our minds where we tend to progress through ideas, point A leads to point B, leads to point C, every once in a while some subset points, but then to D and E in a linear fashion, the chiastic structure suggests that and this was common in the Psalms and other Hebrew writings, that there is the first point and potentially, if this is the structure, the last point have commonalities and can actually enlighten one another as we understand them. The next point in, that there are similarities and that there are similarities on each layer and level, but that also the very central, most important point where we might have it be point F as we go through A, B, C, D, E, okay, there you get it at F, (laughs) is in fact the very center of this structure. 
so that what's leading into it and what's leading out of it, it all actually points like an arrow shape to what is going on there. We did a little bit of looking at that in a couple of weeks, a few weeks back. And in this final crisis piece, right here at the center, is a section of scripture, Revelation chapters 12 through 14. A number of prominent scholars in our church will suggest to us, and other scholars as well, that in fact, not only is there a center, but that there is a center of the center. So you have Revelation 12 through 14, this section, we've talked about it. Revelation 12 talks about this war in heaven, that there is a chaotic challenge, a problem going on that is being resolved, that there are factions, not just human, but in the spiritual realm. Chapters 13 and chapters 14, so that scholars would say to you and to me that in fact, if you want to go to the center of the center, head to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. Our church, our faith community, by the way, if you're not a member of our faith community and you're here today, you're watching online, you're listening to the radio, I'm so delighted that we get to spend time together and that we can talk and that we be family together. You are always welcome. Our faith community has historically understood that there is something important at the heart of the book of Revelation, at the heart of this section of the final crisis that we would call the three angels' messages because that's what John calls them. The scholars would say that in the heart of Revelation, where you find the three angels' message, in the heart of the heart, there is a verse that indicates a notion that is at the core of what the book of Revelation, could it even be the Bible itself, this whole journey, it is about. We find that verse in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 7 where the writer says, he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. I don't know what you think we're talking about when you, we use the language worship. Maybe you I, I use that as a synonym for church the way some of us use the word church. Are you going to church today? For many of us, we know a time and a place that you are referring to. For others of us, if we think differently about the word church, we would say we're not going to church, we're taking church to church. I am the church. Worship is not just a point in time. The worship hour, worship in this sense is not simply a collection of uh, musical moments with prayer and preaching. Worship is something even profoundly beyond that. In fact, worship and the word, the Greek word used here is proskuneo. And this word means to bend or bow down in a gesture of respect and submission. In fact, at the core of this word includes this notion, a picture that would come from an understanding, a deep understanding of this word would not be that a person would simply do a little polite head nod of greeting, nor even bow at the waist. But that a person 
in this scenario would empty their hands and would go down to the ground on their face in submission. It's not just an hour, it's not just a place or a time, it's a way of being, it's a posture. And I'm going to suggest to you that as we explore through the book of Revelation, I really would suggest to you this whole thing leads to a simple and single question that has to do with worship and submission. So, we start to kind of grapple with this book of Revelation in these terms. Have you noticed how often, for a New Testament book, this time period past the Old Testament where there, was, there were all these rituals and storytelling of God about the time to come when Jesus would come and sacrifice himself on a cross. So much of the Old Testament is pointing to that moment. Have you noticed, however, that in the book of Revelation, which is taking us past the moment of the cross of Christ and moving us into how this whole thing will be resolved, that continually, regularly, there are, is commentary and language. We knew it was going to be this way because John takes the language of the Old Testament and weaves it together to tell the story of God. So it shouldn't be terribly surprising to you, to me, that he would use language from the temple metaphor of the Old Testament. You'll notice repeatedly references to altar, candlesticks, uh, incense, the Ark of the Covenant, the temple, the tabernacle, these points of language I'm going to suggest to you all remind us that the context of the book of Revelation is indeed worship. Everything that was going on there, bringing a lamb to be sacrificed, it was about laying claim to the one who would come as your Lord and Savior sacrificed for you in worship. Not only that, we find actually another word that pops up and makes its way in and out of this conversation um, in a couple of different ways that while you might not think has to do with worship, I want to lay claim today, it is another way to talk about this central question, worship. I want to suggest to you that the book of Revelation gives clear and obvious attention to the notion of God's commandments. Now, I don't know how you feel about commandments, very few of us are saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm hoping somebody show up in my life with a new commandment. <laughs> Some form of demand, please, anyone. It isn't what we kind of line up for. Beyond that, uh, probably if I am honest, I get a little bit queasy, a little bit uh, nervous, a little fidgety uh, around commandments because of some historical issues that I have felt even in my own life with the subject of grace. I don't know how you feel about it, but for some, as we talk about it, at times, it sounds like we have a continuum where grace is at one end and commandments are at the other end. I want to suggest to you, commandments, these ten commandments, central to them is the idea of worship. 
And that rather than a continuum where you either have grace or you're interested in the law of God, that this is actually a false comparison. They aren't on a continuum one from the other. In fact, what maybe I can think to do is to consider that what God is calling into my life is the highest levels of grace known to man and the highest calibration with the character of God possible. That these are not in competition, but what God is calling me to is a place of high engagement with his character through his commandments, high claiming of the grace of Jesus Christ on my behalf. And I'd like to explore it just a little bit deeper, a little bit further, going into the heart of this arrow in the book of Revelation and back out, kind of unpacking some of the language. You can recall, you know it, there in the third angel's message in the 12th, 12th verse of, Je- of Revelation 14, which by the way, we're gonna spend a little time with the third angel's messages, um, the three angel's messages in, in a couple of weeks. So this is kind of cursory, but hang on for dear life. This calls, John writes, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And this notion that there is, there is God followership that is a part of God's people because this is a battle, there is a war going on back and forth and back and forth, this shows up. Could be bothersome depending on your uh, ideas. I don't know if you've ever noticed this though. Do you recall all the way back to Exodus chapter 34? The Ten Commandments have been given. And we, we, we reach this particular point in the telling of the story in the 28th verse. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days, 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, you, you just, we, we now bump right on into the Ten Commandments, but did you notice there is also a second title given here? That in fact, the writer is saying that the Ten Commandments, another name for the Ten Commandments, the words of the covenant. Ha. Huh. The idea of the covenant is brought up repeatedly through the Old Testament and then the New Covenant into the New Testament. But from its inception, there's this notion that the character of God is intertwined with the covenant, the promise. And that it is another way to say the Ten Commandments, the notion of the words of the covenant. Well, it's not even gonna stop there. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai then, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And so in the space of two short verses, there are three different titles for the Ten Commandments that are given, right? You notice them? The words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, and the tablets of the testimony. And if you're careful, if you're paying attention, if you're observant, and you know what you're looking at, you're going to notice that not only is the book of Revelation interested in worship and the commandments, but we'll talk about it with terms such as these. You find it in the, 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 the verse leading into the center of the center, chapters 12 through 14. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19 says this, then God's temple in heaven was open and with him, within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. Now we know about the language of the ark of the covenant but have you, have you grappled with what is going on there with the ark of the covenant? What's inside the ark of the covenant? A couple of things. 
not the least of which, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, the words of the covenant. By the way, what if the Ten Commandments are every bit as much promises from God as they are challenges on my life? And by the way, high calibration with the character of God, high engagement with his grace. Do you know what this top of the Ark of the Covenant has on it, what it's called? It's called the mercy seat, right there with the commandments. So fascinatingly, leading right on into this spearhead point in Revelation, this notion of the covenant. And then on the way out, in chapter 15, you find this word in it as well. After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple that is, the tabernacle of the testimony was opened. You can miss these words, not see the connection to the subject of these commandments. Well, it's fascinating when you think about the Ten Commandments, right? Now, you know, I'm sure, that the Ten Commandments is really broken into two groups, right? There are two kind of categories in the Ten Commandments. Jesus kind of, he refers to it there in Mark chapter 2 when he says, uh, you want to know the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And there's a second one, love your neighbor as yourself, so if you think about commandments five through 10, you're thinking about things like honor your father and your mother and, and, and honor the lives of others. Don't engage in murder or in, in lying and falsehood or in adultery and covetousness. And all these, these, this second half is how we treat one another. Fascinating, isn't it? I challenge you to find a organized society on this planet who doesn't in one way or another engage in that part of the commandments. All of our humanity seems to kind of go along with the notion of not murdering and that it isn't great to bear false witness and that we shouldn't just take from one another and so on. That's not where the argument tends to be. The argument about the law of God tends to be with the first set, with the part, and this is all the way down to you and me, right? Very few of us are going to actually stand up and say, just, I just want to make a case for murder. <laughs> so right now, I mean, have you talked to that person? So let's all just get on board. But one after the other, after the other, after the other, the first four, commands, parts of God's character, come under stress and negotiation and discard. Fascinating that here in this very book of Revelation, in the heart of the heart, in chapters 12 through 14, specifically chapter 13, there will be references that you can track to each of the first four commandments. Is it possible that part of what is going on here, the subject of worship surrounds that first half of the Decalogue, and whether or not you and I really are interested in submitting to him? We find our way, <clears throat> recapping Mark, writing Jesus' words, love the Lord your God, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. And then let's look at these first four commandments, if you don't mind. 
First, have no other gods. Second, don't worship images. Third, don't blaspheme against God. And fourth, honor the Sabbath day. Now again, uh, in our faith community, it seems fairly obvious to me that you would kind of be aware of this by the fact that you're here today. This faith community worships as a day of worship on the Sabbath day, the seventh day of the week. That, of course, is not what everybody has concluded is the calling on their life. And there could be somebody here who worships as the day of worship on Sunday, and I just want to say to you, number one, I am so glad that we get to talk together about this. And number two, that what you need in your life is not to just simply agree with me (laughs) or the person sitting next to you, but to have honest, open conversations with God as you study his word. And in the meantime, if you're having honest conversations with God as you study his word, you and I are going to be great neighbors. We're fine. But let's talk just a little bit about this idea of honoring the Sabbath day as well. So just by the way, just looking at the 13th chapter, we find that there is the worshiping of a dragon and then also the image of the dragon and images referred to and blaspheming included as well. And then finally, we have reference to something called the mark of a beast. Now what's going on there? There is a number that's spelled out on a forehead and we could go way deep into some of this kind of territory. But let's acknowledge a couple of things. Number one, the forehead, this is, because these are all symbols, right? Just to be clear, (laughs) we've acknowledged that John says, I'm writing to you in symbolic language, all right? So what is it that's going on here? It's where your decisions lie. It's where your thinking is. So that in the Old Testament, the, the Hebrews would be encouraged to take a portion of the law of God and tie it to your forehead. And of course, by the time you get to Jesus' day, the folks are doing much more of the literal than they are the symbolic and what that actually represents. Where your decisions are, you've got a decision to make, and it centrally has to do with a sign, a symbol of allegiance to God. And in our faith community, and we can go deeply into it, we're not going to get to right here, right now, but I'll just say this, in our faith community, consistently, our study and our conversation, we keep coming back to some clarity that God has invited us to a seventh day of the week Sabbath worship. In fact, if you look at Exodus chapter 31, the Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come. So you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. And in the book of Revelation, in that center of the center, this notion of a mark on a forehead is a sign of allegiance, a symbol of commitment, a conversation about worship. So you find embedded in this conversation these issues of worship. And why, one wonders, would this even be important? In fact, let's ask the question, is is the Sabbath all that important one way or the other? Uh, An interesting perspective, I uh, was shown this by my friend Jim, who uh, was familiar with the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer, who writes this, follow along if you don't mind, not an Adventist, a Christian, 
and you can tell it by what he writes here. Recently, I read a survey done by a doctor who cited the happiest people on earth. Near the top of the list was a group of Christians called Seventh-day Adventists who were religious literally about the Sabbath. By the way, just time out and backing up. How awesome would it be if everybody just intuitively would say, happiest people on earth, you gotta list the Adventists. And it didn't require a study to be cited. Anyway, side note. But again, Seventh-day Adventists who are religious literally about the Sabbath. This doctor noted that they lived 10 years longer than the average American. And we could go into all the reasons why that might be, but listen to this. I did the math. If I Sabbath every seven days, it adds up to, wait for it, 10 years over a lifetime. Almost exactly. So, when I say the Sabbath is life-giving, that's not empty rhetoric. If this study is to be believed, every day you Sabbath, you are, statistically and scientifically, likely to get back an elongated life. Amen is right. The Bible, it's, it's not, the Sabbath is not a way to measure how easily you and I are tripped up. It is, in fact, an infusion of value into our lives. Could it be that if you worship, really worship on the Sabbath, that you live a longer life than you otherwise would have? I, I believe this. The same God who says, when you tithe and you give to me, you are laying claim to a truth. And that is that I own the cattle on a thousand hills. So whatever your financial situation is today, we know your financial situation for all time. For I have you in my hands. And the concern you have for today, I have you. Could it be that same God would say, for those of you that are worried about your health, maybe you've received recently a doctor's, you know, verdict. You know what, though? For the rest of us in the room, we don't need a doctor to tell us. We're dying. Or are we? the God of Sabbath says, even in the short term of this few years, 70 to 90, I'm starting to move that number as far as I can. You follow me, you submit yourself to me, and you have more days. And guess what? Even if somebody takes away your tomorrow, I get to say how many days you have. Is there value? John Mark Comer finishes this little section of his book by saying, from now on, I'm Sabbathing three days a week. <laughs> but in that little comment, there is a window into something I would counter with. I don't think it is just any day of rest. It is, in fact, the rest that God has in mind for me. 
And if that is true, one might wonder, is there any difference between Sabbath and Sabbaths? You know that language is used throughout scripture, that there is a seventh day Sabbath and that there is a you know, there are Sabbaths. First of all, the Seventh-day Sabbath, have you thought about this? There are, are very few things that we know about that predate sin. The sacrificing of a lamb is a part of the storytelling of that Messiah to come and Jesus Christ, Christ who would die on a cross. That all occurred after, even for the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was all an after-sin moment. Not so with Sabbath. Sabbath was created not to tell simply the story of what God would do in rescuing us, but to tell the story of who we are. What humanity is, is supposed to be. That you are meant to have a relationship with a God you can trust that you could feel comfortable fully submitting to him. And maybe if this is true, that God has established this as a part of how humanity functions all the way back at creation. Sabbath points back. The Sabbaths of the sacrificial system point forward. The Sabbath back to the way God intended that we would always be. Forward with the Sabbaths to a time that God would rescue us from this sin-soaked planet. Interesting, right here in the 13th chapter of Revelation, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. This creator God, there is something in it deep inside of the notion of the Sabbath. Could it be? As you and I, by the way, in the 13th chapter of Revelation alone, the word worship in Greek is mentioned eight times. Seven of them, the worshipers are worshiping in a way or something that violates the commandments. And then in that 12th verse, there's reference to the commandments, and in the seventh verse of chapter 14, in these, I'm sorry, two chapters, 13 and 14, in the seventh verse of chapter 14, they have the patience of the saints. These are the true worshipers. Amidst this conversation, we're left with a conclusion. You could be an atheist, but Revelation says everybody worships. Everybody submits. That it's not an available position to not submit to something. Everyone does. The question is, to whom and how do you do it? Sabbaths point back our Sabbaths, I'm sorry, Sabbaths point forward in the sacrificial system 
And it, it makes some sense that some of this sacrificial system that was pointing forward to the cross would not be nearly so important once we have the Christ of the cross come to earth. But different is the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus in Mark chapter two would say it this way. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And some might use that verse to suggest that it is a completely negotiable idea, but when you understand the original language, it challenges that entirely. That word was made for man is actually the word anthropos in Greek. It means all mankind, all, com- all humanity across time, every gender, every race, everyone, not just the Jews, every human being. Sabbath was made for mankind. Before man was even made, Sabbath was envisioned. In creation, Sabbath was claimed on our behalf in the goodness that God meant for us. So he could say it this way, the Sabbath was made for all of mankind and not humanity for the Sabbath. Something big going on there. And then, then I, I also think about this from Exodus chapter 16. The children of Israel have, have left Egypt. They're wandering around the wilderness. There could be, scholars say, as many as a million of them. And it just strikes me that they were like a you know, swarm of locusts just deforesting what would be very little vegetation in the first place. And they get to a point where they are hungry, they are frustrated, let's just go back to Egypt, and God provides for them. Do you remember? God sends them food in the mornings. Do you remember what it's called? Yes, manna. Now, as manna is going to come, you know, Moses gives the instruction, manna will fall in the morning, go out and collect it. But by the way, only collect enough for one day because it will rot, it will spoil, not good. And the Bible says that some said, yeah, right, sure, whatever you say, Moses. There's so much manna and it tastes good and I need food. I'm going to collect extra. By the way, I have the containers for it and then tomorrow I can vacation on my manna. Except that the next day, that manna that had been gathered the day before was filled with maggots and it was rotted and their whole place stunk. And then as the days go by, Moses gives the instruction, no, 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 there is a difference. While you have this this clear instruction, you only gather enough for the day, which by the way, maybe that'd be a great place for us to squat down and think for a minute when I have a difficulty, a struggle, and I am worrying about tomorrow. Could it be that a part of the lesson of the man is if you follow this God, he has what you need for today. Tomorrow will come, and he will provide for tomorrow. But on a Friday morning, Moses is saying, now, here's the thing. Today, you know what I said before about collecting extra manna? Friday's different. Gather up enough not only for today, but for tomorrow as well. And do you suppose there was anybody contrarian enough like they were on a Tuesday saying, no, I'm gathering extra for Wednesday that decide, you know what? No, I'm going to go back out there. I think there will be some. I'm not gathering Sabbaths. You know, I'm going to do that then. I don't know. It's just that it wasn't there and the manna that they had gathered was good on a Sabbath. And here's the question. Who decided what day the rules of manna would change. 
God did. But wait, let's, let's form a committee and we'll pitch some ideas. So maybe there's a different day. We would rather it be that way. Guess what? Doesn't matter. It's working that way Friday morning to Sabbath morning. That's the way it's going to work. God, God had the power to decide it, and it seemed like he was putting an exclamation point behind something, that this is a day that I have chosen to do amazing things for you, and he says it throughout the Old Testament, says it into the New Testament, and then we hit Revelation chapter 12 through 14 where there is a great and grand argument about who will you worship and how will you worship. And so it makes some sense, doesn't it, that we would include even the fourth commandment in this conversation all about worship. And I just want to say again to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are of a conviction to worship as a day of worship on Sunday. I believe you should worship every day, by the way. Just like they ate manna every day. But I do believe that God not only has the right, but chose to make something unique about the seventh day. As I say that, I, I want to say that if you worship as a day of worship on Sunday, you shouldn't be taking things from me. You should be having this conversation with Jesus. He can convict you of all things. And at its core, the subject of worship is not primarily about a day. It is about emptying my hands of my power and going face down in the dust because I believe I can trust him and I submit to him. And so I would call you to that. Surely we know plenty of people that we would stake, our, stake all of our faith, it seems, on the idea that we will see them in heaven because they've been faithful to God. And I would suggest to you that there are people who've worshiped on Sunday, on Sabbath, that fit that category. If you are having the active conversation with God, he can speak to you. But by the way, if you are a Sabbath keeper, there is something more, I believe, that God wants to say to all of us. He said it, Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 15, check this out. Jesus is actually quoting from Isaiah when he says, these people, do you know who he's talking to? Sabbath keepers. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Same Jesus who said, greatest commandment, you want to talk about Sabbath? It can all be summed up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, everything with all, all in. And he looks upon what is going on and I wonder if he might look upon your life or mine and say, yeah, great job coming to church on a Sabbath, dressed nicely, singing well, quoting scripture, giving of your tithes, but... It's lip service. And I 
it seems the Bible says, am an all or nothing God. In fact, if you are not worshiping me with all your heart on a Sabbath, you're not worshiping on a Sabbath. Huh. One of my favorite challenging passages, do you have that? Where there, it's a favorite, but not because it feels good. It just it provokes you. It's found in Malachi, Malachi chapter one. You might be more familiar with Malachi chapter four, but Malachi chapter one, here's part of what's going on. See, God has, has orchestrated the storytelling to help the people of, of Israel try to understand the sacrifice of God, his willingness to put everything on the line for them and to save them, to rescue them. And so the sacrificial system is built out telling the story of Jesus who is to come and sacrifice on a cross. And so what they were challenged to do could be a person who has next to nothing, somebody who has a lot of stuff. They are, they are asked to give of their best. Go into your flock and find your very best lamb and give it in sacrifice. So by the time we get to Malachi chapter one, there's a conversation that's going on because it would seem that some, and they might have been those who are impoverished, you see, God does not, is not bothered by your lamb not being as good as your neighbor's land. What he's bothered by is that when your lamb that you give to him is not your best. And so some, maybe it's the wealthy, go into their flocks and they're looking around and it's time to take a sacrifice. And by the way, that lamb right over there is blind and I can hide that to the altar and then no one will ever know. This one is crippled and I'll just act loving. This one has a disease that most won't be able to spot. These lambs are ruined. They're not good for my my life, I'll give them to Jesus. And Jesus says, I want what's good for your life to be given to me. So that in the 13th verse of Malachi 1, God's voice comes saying, when you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat. Whew. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. Oh, this pesters me. Because this is the problem. I can make my lamb look good. Is it possible that for some of us, our second level lamb looks as good as everybody else's first level? But God knows and you know it's your best or it's not at all, it would seem. For in the 10th verse he would say, oh, that some one of you would shut the Collegedale Church doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. And if I showed up here today with second class me, saving my best for my own stuff, not fully all in. This is the greatest commandment, that you love God with everything you are. This is what it means to worship, to fall on your face in full submission before God. And that that seventh day of the week experience permeates all other days.
Oh, that you would worship me in fullness and in truth, spirit as well as correctness. Jesus challenges us today. As you study Revelation, I just want to encourage you to go looking through it, find your way to the center for sure, and notice that there is a great and grand argument about who you will worship and how, and when I say how, how much of you? Full on? Absolute submission? You know what? We're not fans of submission, are we? We're rugged folk. No, we're not. We are walking dead. Outside of full submission to the one who says and is love that you and I can trust. That's what this battle in the book of Revelation is about. This picture is probably, uh, we've decided probably about 2004, maybe 2005, but probably 2004, our, our children, and, and then in the middle of it you can see uh, that's not a bear, <laughs> though some people would think so, especially when we were having Bible studies with students at our home and Murphy, our chocolate lab, about 100-pound dog, would be outside so as not to kind of, you know, get in the fray too much and he would decide finally that he wanted to be inside and we're in the living room of the farmhouse and boom, up onto the window, he would kind of hop with his face in the darkness and his big, huge bear head looking, yeah. Murphy, a ferocious sounding dog, by the way. We had an underground fence, and if anybody walked very near it, he would begin barking, arr, 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 and it seemed pretty ferocious, and his eyes were a lighter color than his coat, and that seemed to some, they might suggest, a little demonic. But anyway, and he would come bounding across the yard to you to try to get where you were barking, come, 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 and that's what he was saying. We had a number of students trapped on the trampoline in our yard. <laughs> I've got to tell you, this is probably the closest I have ever come to being worshipped. Yeah. <laughs> I see my wife getting emotional. Now you're going to make me hurt a little bit. I remember going and looking for this dog, Murphy. We, we didn't know what it would, we went and traipsed all around the family five. We're in the car, we're just going all over Pennsylvania looking for a kennel that had purebred chocolate labs, the English, English breed, loved the big head. I had had a childhood Labrador and just, I just wanted one. We got to this one place and this is the last of eight. This is the runt who bounced between 100 and 110 pounds through the course of his life. Yeah, big boy. But we read up a little bit about how you can figure out whether a dog's going to be great with children and how it's going to work, you know, all this sort of thing. And what they would say is, you know, try, see what will happen when you flip it over on its back. What's the response? Let me tell you the response of Murphy. This is Murphy, <laughs> who has fallen asleep in a posture that he will regularly sleep through the course of his life. 
A dog will do this when they feel they have no choice, but they won't fall asleep doing that unless they're absolutely feeling safe and that they can trust. And this is what the question is. Do you feel safe? And in the book of Revelation, Jesus Christ attempts to tell the story of who he is and convince you and me we are safe enough to fall asleep on the ground, belly up. In fact, worship today, I believe, is full submission born of trust and love. And I believe the entire Bible speaks of it and calls for it. I believe that when, when God and Jesus spoke to Adam and Eve and said, don't, don't go near that tree, he is calling them to worship. When Cain and Abel end up in their scuffle and before the first murder would occur with the offerings that have, it's an argument over worship. the altars that Abraham would build, the sacrifices that would lead all the way through the Old Testament, the system set up for a people so long in slavery they were ignorant of who God was almost completely. That God is calling out with the same question embedded in Revelation chapter 14. Can you trust me? and submit. And it will be evidenced by you making me your God no other. It will be evidenced by the relationship that is so alive you don't need an image. It will affect the language you speak and the day you stop everything will be the day I invited you to. Because the life you deserve to live is the life I am inviting you to. Oh, don't pick your own day. Don't pick your own life. I am love. And I am yours. You are safe if you will come to me. Lord God, as we go through this week, as we make our choices, as we decide how we're going to live, we hear your invitation and we ask you to shout it over our lives, knock on our, the door of our heart, call your way in to who we are. Lord, see us now, see us today. We are so thankful that you've not given up on us. And while others might see us as a good investment, what we know about ourselves is that it's not exactly true. It's not a good investment much at all. It's just that you love us so deeply, so completely. And so, Lord God, today I choose you. I choose to worship you in fullness 
of heart, not just with my lips. Lord God, accept me. I just want to say, Lord, I, I give myself to you not out of some coercion, manipulation, or a habit, but out of the conviction of looking into the life, the eyes of the Savior, Jesus Christ, in your revelation, we are yours. In Jesus, amen.